Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to continue with our investigation of the Scriptures as we search out the meaning of Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. During my instruction in a theological college, I was told one vital piece of information by an Old Testament professor. He said, if you misunderstand the Old Testament, you will misunderstand the New That's why it's so important for Christians to realize that making a relationship with Jesus involves more than just saying yes to him in some vague manner or accepting him in your heart. It means understanding his mind and his teaching. Salvation is not just about the death and resurrection of Jesus, although, of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus are essential parts of God's great scheme of salvation, but it's the teaching ministry of Jesus that often seems to be omitted from popular presentations of the gospel. Why did Jesus preach the gospel for three years or so, if indeed it's only his death and resurrection that count? I've even heard it said that Jesus doesn't require us anymore to pray the Lord's Prayer about thy kingdom come and asking for our sins to be forgiven. Just recently I heard somebody say that our sins are already forgiven by God through Jesus Christ and his death, and therefore it would be redundant for us now to ask for forgiveness. Indeed, Jesus taught that we will not be forgiven unless we forgive others. But that teaching, so I was told recently, is not part of the Christian message now. That really is fantastic. It would seem to be a theory by which the teaching of Jesus is actually eclipsed and negated. Now, John the Apostle does not seem to have heard of such teaching. He says that if we confess our sins, then God, through Jesus Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But obviously in that text in 1 John, the first chapter, we are expected to ask forgiveness on an ongoing basis. It is therefore very far from being the truth to say that we don't need an ongoing forgiveness of sin day by day. It's quite wrong to imagine that at Jesus' death, He forgave all of our sins automatically. That would make our part in the salvation process completely meaningless. Jesus, you know, said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't be in the kingdom of heaven. You won't be saved, in other words. You won't enter the kingdom of God when I come to establish it at my second coming, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now, that's a challenge to Christians. It's quite false to imagine that there's nothing that we have to do in order to work out our own salvation. Indeed, Paul himself said in a much-neglected verse in Romans 2, verse 13, Not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law will be made righteous, will be justified. Let me mention those two verses again because they merit a great deal of soul-searching and meditation. In Romans 2, verse 13, Paul said, Not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law will be justified. You'll remember that James, the half-brother of Jesus, said something similar in his epistle, his letter in chapter 2 and verse 24. There James said this, You see then, brethren, that a man is justified or made righteous by works and not by faith alone. Faith then must produce works if faith is to be genuine faith. 
Paul also said in the book of Philippians that we're to work out our own salvation because God is at work in us to do his good will and pleasure. And so you see, salvation is a joint effort between what God offers us and our response to that offer. And salvation comes by hearing the gospel as Jesus preached it. Jesus was a saving teacher and preacher as well as a saviour who died and rose from the dead. It's important then to give the enormous prominence to the kingdom of God, the gospel as Jesus preached it. It would be hard to imagine a greater emphasis than Jesus gives to any single subject than the kingdom of God. And that takes us then to a very important text in Isaiah 53:11. In that famous chapter we read of the suffering servant who goes through a great deal of tribulation and agony on behalf of the people. But in the 11th verse, something else is said about the work of that suffering servant, the Messiah. By his knowledge, Isaiah wrote, by Messiah's knowledge, my righteous servant will make many righteous. I'm reading there from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11. A prominent part of the work of Jesus then is not only to die for our sins, but to make people righteous through his knowledge. Now, this concept of righteousness through knowledge may not be popular, but it's a critically important part of the work of Jesus. That righteous servant in Isaiah 53:11 is going to make many righteous through his knowledge. And that reminds us also of a very important text in Daniel 12, verse 3, where we read that those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. That's talking of the resurrection. And those who make many righteous will shine like the stars forever and ever. You see, God has his stars, and they're described here as those who have insight and who make many others righteous. In other words, they're imparting that saving knowledge of the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus Christ, Acts 8, verse 12. There's more to salvation than believing that Jesus died to cover our sins. Basic and fundamental as that central fact certainly is, Jesus was a saving teacher and preacher, a rabbi, an instructor. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he said, and you will not do the things that I say. And what he said is summed up in his gospel message of the kingdom, what he requires us to do as potential heirs of the kingdom is summarized in the famous Sermon on the Mount, where we're told to turn the other cheek, we're to love our enemies, we're told to do good to those who persecute us or give us trouble, we're exhorted to the strictest marital fidelity. Even the intention to commit adultery is as bad as actually committing adultery. Even hating is parallel with killing itself. These are the standards required for those who hope to enter the kingdom when it comes. Now, none of us, of course, can possibly claim to be sinless. And yet Jesus says that we are to be mature, be perfect, be mature, he said. Just like your Father in heaven is mature, that's an exceedingly high standard. And it's only possible, of course, by submitting ourselves to the whole teaching of Jesus and gaining his spirit and the strength which that spirit imparts to develop the character and the personality of Jesus himself.
You'll remember that Jesus said in John 6, verse 63, The words that I speak to you are spirit and are life. You see, Jesus' teaching imparts the very life and the mind of God. The very immortality which belongs to God alone is transmitted to us through the words of Jesus as well, of course, as the forgiveness that we gain through his death and the life that he now imparts as being the resurrected Christ. But the resurrected Christ is no different from the Jesus who walked this earth and preached. The very same preaching and teaching which he gave to the apostles is to be carried on throughout this interim period before Jesus comes to establish the kingdom. Jesus has not changed. His gospel of the kingdom has not changed. The great commission, the great commandment, we might say, of Jesus in Matthew 28, mandates that the church teaches exactly the same gospel as Jesus preached until the end of the age. This is the essence of simplicity. There's one gospel, and it's beautifully defined for us by Jesus in his own words, as being the gospel about the kingdom of God, added to which were the facts of his death and resurrection, giving us a beautiful formula in Acts 8.12, defining the gospel as the gospel about the kingdom and the things concerning Jesus Christ. It was when folk believed in the kingdom of God gospel, as Philip preached it there in Acts 8.12, and the things concerning Jesus Christ, it was when they had taken in that information and accepted that message, that kingdom message, that they were ready to be baptized. Acts 8 and verse 12. Now, a vital part of the information and the knowledge which Jesus transmits to us, part of that saving knowledge that we read about in Isaiah 53 verse 11, is the scheme of history by which we know what God is doing as he unfolds his purpose. And that purpose, of course, is driven by one central motif, God's objective is to restore peace and harmony on this earth by sending his son back to establish a fair government in Jerusalem. You see, the peace of mankind was originally disturbed in the Garden of Eden, and that peace is going to be restored. That is fundamental to all the words of the prophets, and Jesus never doubted that for one moment. All of his teaching is geared to preparing us now for that great restoration of the kingdom of God, of harmony in nature even, and in the affairs of mankind, those things will be realized only at the second coming. In order to understand that scheme, Jesus spoke of what we might call the two ages. Now, this is a very simple concept, but it's not always a familiar one. Jesus spoke of the present age as being dominated by the work of Satan, but he looked forward to the coming age of the kingdom, the future age, and so history is divided into two major segments. We have the present evil age. Paul called it exactly that in Galatians 1, verse 4. But we're looking forward to the kingdom of God age, the new age of the kingdom to be inaugurated and to be introduced by the second coming of Jesus. In Matthew 12, verse 32, Jesus said this, Whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. In Luke 20, verse 35, Jesus spoke of that age. That's to say, that well-known age of the future when people will be resurrected in order precisely to enter that future age. 
Now, the present age ends at the future second coming of Jesus. And following that, we will not have an end of history. History will continue. But it will be a different sort of history because Jesus will be back here on the earth governing on the throne of David for which he was destined from the moment of his birth onwards. That new age of the kingdom, that future age, is known as the coming age in many passages in the teaching of Jesus. And that coming age will be introduced by the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. That's why no less than three times in Matthew 13, Jesus spoke of the end of this age, or the end of the age, Matthew 13, verse 40. And again in Matthew 13, verse 49, he mentioned the end of the age when the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and they will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of Jesus' discourse there in Matthew 13, he asked the disciples this. He said, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. Jesus then replied to them and said, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom is like a head of a household who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. Did you notice there Jesus' description and definition of a Christian? It's the disciple of the kingdom whom Jesus is interested in. Everything in the teaching of Jesus is geared to the kingdom of God. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom of God. Join us again for our continuing discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.